Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapters 33 and 34. The Lord said to Moses, go, leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, Show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain and do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones and he rose early in the morning and went up on, on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. The Lord passed before him and pr proclaimed the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. 
Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. He said, I hereby make a covenant. Before all your people, I will perform marvels, such as have not been performed in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you live shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from John chapter 14. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The word that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this week we arrive at our second to last sermon in our Exodus series, and our passage this morning is kind of a sequel to the passage that we looked at last week, um, the passage about the golden calf. And it kind of functions as a bridge, if you will, between the violation of God's promise uh, by the people of Israel and then a renewed movement towards that promise as the people then depart from Sinai towards the promised land. And being a passage that is kind of sandwiched between the failure of the people and the fulfillment of the promise, it revolves around this singular question of God's character. Who is the God that stands behind this covenant? And there are three things that I think we can um, reflect on this morning as it pertains to God from this passage, and that is God's mediator, God's presence, and God's restoration. So diving right in, God's mediator. As I said, this passage, it is the sequel to the incident of the golden calf. Um, the people, they break one of the most sacred laws that God has given them in the Ten Commandments, which is to not worship through this mode of idolatry. And idolatry is sacrilegious because it is something that tries to tame God, to make God accessible through human control in this idol. And per the God, law that God has given them, this is a capital offense. But Moses functioning as he does in this role of God's prophet, he, he steps into the gap between God and the people, and he acts as this mediator. And as God's beloved, as God's friend even, Moses is able to secure pardon and forgiveness for the people from God. But as we learn at the beginning of this uh, chapter, chapter 33, this forgiveness it's only partial. It's, it's qualified. Because God tells Moses, yes, I will give you the land that I promised your ancestors, 
but I personally will not go with you into the land. Instead, God will send his angel or a messenger to accompany them. Now, this is not entirely new. There has been an angel, the angel of Yahweh, who has been following the people since the Exodus. Um, but this angel has been very special. The angel of Yahweh is, is kind of the, the, the locus of God's presence. He mediates God's presence, if you will, um, such that whenever the angel of the Lord speaks, it's as if, as if God is speaking. And when the angel of the Lord hears from the people, it's as if God himself is hearing. And what God is telling Moses is that his presence will no longer abide with his angel to lead them out of, out of Egypt into the promised land, as was previous the case. Moving forward, God will be absence, absent from the people's midst. And this is actually catastrophic because what makes Israel, God's holy people, is that they have been set apart as a people to be God's dwelling place. And what makes the holy land the holy land that they are moving towards is that it is the place where God has chosen to dwell with his people. A few weeks ago, uh, Cindy Parker came and spoke to the fellows cohort that I lead at Penn on a theology of place. And during our session, she drew this triangle on the dry erase board for students to illustrate that in the Bible, there are three com components to a theology of place. There's the land, there is the people, and then there is God. And God is both intimately connected to both the people and the land, such that if you remove God from the equation, if you remove him from the triangle, then the entire biblical theology of place falls apart. And so for Israel to go into the land, but for God to be absent, is no different than if Israel were to be in exile. And so Moses, once again, he steps up into the breach to act as a mediator for God's people. And this time, not just a mediator of forgiveness, but a mediator of God's presence. Now, as we kind of read these negotiations between Moses and God, both last week and this week, maybe we kind of feel a little uncomfortable because it sounds like God is mercurial or that he's ill-tempered and he kind of needs Moses to like step in and kind of calm him down. Um, I think of my father-in-law here, God bless him. Um, he is someone who can kind of wake up on the wrong side of the bed, feel a little bit grumpy, snap at you kind of asks his daughter, who is this guy, Ryan, that you've married and why are you married to him? You know, all that, all that fun stuff. And he really, my mother-in-law is a very patient woman. She's wonderful. She, she is great at kind of counseling him through his kind of grumpy moments and kind of calming him down. And so we kind of might like, right, get the impression that God is sort of like a big grumpy father-in-law here and that Moses is like the one coaching him down. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that Exodus is a narrative. Uh, there's a storytelling element to this book. Um, the exchange here is not intended to be this kind of literalistic description of who God is, but rather it's a device to explain something about the complex character of God. That God is just, that God takes evil and injustice seriously, but that God is also a God of mercy. It's intriguing that some of the Jewish rabbis, when they read this passage, they also felt uneasy. 
And they talked about how Moses actually is embodying the attribute of God's mercy here, such that as if in Moses, it's as if God is interceding before God. And you can note how frank and open Moses is with God here, as if speaking to an equal. He says to God, look, you have told me that I have favor with you, and you have promised that this people are your chosen people. And yet now you will send this angel to lead us, whose identity I don't even know. God, what are you doing here? And because of God's boldness, because of Moses' boldness, because of God, because of Moses being God's mercy before God, God relents. And he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But Moses still isn't satisfied because this answer isn't clear enough for him. Who is the you here that God will go with? Uh, is it just Moses? Is it the people? And so Moses once again makes a request of God, a very specific request this time, that God would go up with both Moses and the people from this place. And once again, God agrees to do exactly as Moses requested. But Moses is still not satisfied with God's promise. And so he makes one more request of God, something that maybe seems like a non sequitur at first glance. And that is that God would show Moses his glory. Now, I think this is an intriguing request at this juncture because in the world of American Christianity, American evangelicalism, God's word is paramount. God's word is everything. And Christians are exhorted to simply trust God's word. But Moses has the gall here to say that God's word is insufficient. Moses says to God, show me your glory, I pray. In other words, I don't need to just hear your word. I need to see you. Let me see your glory so that I know the character of your presence, that it is faithful and that it's reliable. God's word is a beautiful thing, and there's so much to love in these stories from the Old Testament or from the gospel accounts of Jesus, the theology of Paul's epistles. But what this scene teaches us is that we need to go deeper than the word. We need to encounter God himself there. The Bible, all our theology, they're the map and not the territory. They are good, but they're only good insofar as we use them as a means of deeper communion with the reality that stands behind them. Our son, Michael, has just passed the two and a half age mark. And, and that means we're kind of getting to this fun place, right, where he is afraid of the dark, which is making bedtime um, interesting. And last week, we finally got him off to bed, um, got him to sleep and settle down. And so Vian and I are going to spend some nice adult time together. We're going to watch a movie in our room. And so we go down, turn the TV on. We get five minutes into our movie, and then from down the hall we hear, Mommy, Mommy, come. So we groan, okay? So my wife's got, I have an idea. So she goes down the hall, and she opens the door to Michael's room, and she kind of negotiates with him and says, Michael, I'll leave your door open. Mommy and Daddy will leave their door open. You can hear us. We can hear you. Is that okay? Can you go back to sleep? He kind of nods and says yes. So great. So we go back. We start our movie again. Two minutes go by. Mommy, mommy, come. And so we groan again. 
And VN's like, okay, Michael, Michael, you can hear us, right? Like, like hear our voice. It's okay, honey. You're okay. You're okay. We hear a pause. Mommy, sleep with me. So this is, this is the end, right? Our adult time is over. And so VN, she goes down the hall, and we have this mattress beside Michael's bed, and she lies down, and she sleeps next to him. And Michael finally goes off to sleep. Now being a dad, um, I see this idea in the Bible that God is our father and we are his children in a very new light. And for children, it's not just enough to hear the voice of their parent. They want their parent's presence, to be in the dark room with them. And so it is for us with God. The answer to our doubts, the assurance of our hope, the grace for our failures is not a pious idea or a theological system. It's to encounter the presence of the Lord and for God to be God with us. And so that brings us secondly to this idea of God's presence. In our reflection uh, this morning in our bulletins, we had a quote from St. John Chrysostom. It is not enough to leave Egypt. One must also enter the promised land, he writes. And the promised land is not ultimately this territory that is circumscribed to the land of Canaan. The promised land is any place where we enter into God's presence. And our calling in life, our journey in life, is to enter into that true promised land. Everything in the Exodus story, it revolves around this question of God's presence. The purpose of the Exodus is that we would leave behind our Egypts, our place of failure, our place of bondage, so that we can come to the place where we dwell with God himself. And so it's fitting that in seeking the assurance of God's promise, Moses would desire to see the promised destination, which is God himself. And so God tells Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. Now, this recalls the first time that God's name was uttered before Moses, the first appearance of God to Moses, which was back at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Only this time, God is not going to appear to Moses through this symbol of a burning bush, but directly in his own glory. However, there's a caveat, which is that although Moses can gaze upon this glory, uh, Moses is not able to see God's face. Instead, Moses must hide in a rock, be covered by God's hand, and once God has passed by, then God will remove his hand and Moses can see God's back as he passes on. Now, this maybe feels kind of like weird to us. Like, are we venturing into like Greek mythology territory here? Like we think of God as like this kind of Zeus-like figure, this old man with a beard that like we maybe think of from like the Sistine Chapel or something like that. Uh, but again, we have to bear in mind that Exodus is narrative. It's using concrete language, a story, to illustrate something in verbal imagery that is ultimately indescribable. And this image of Moses needing to hide in the rock as Yahweh passes by, to be permitted to only gaze upon God's back, is intended to drive home this point that God is utterly transcendent, that finite human beings can neither contain nor comprehend God's infinitude. And so Moses cannot see God in full, like doing so would actually be literally mind-blowing. 
right? God is not an object that we can like put under a microscope. He's not this thing that we can dissect. Gregory of Nyssa, another church father, he, he comments on this passage in his book, Life of Moses, and he argues that what is being revealed here is that since God is infinite and boundless, we can never exhaust the divine mystery that is God. He writes, this truly is the vision of God, never to be satisfied in the desire to see him, but one must always, by looking at what he can see, rekindle his desire to see more. And so when we encounter God, we don't encounter this concept that we can master. We encounter an infinite mystery for us to ponder, an infinite mystery that we can never exhaust in its fullness. However, there are things, right, that, that get in our way of experiencing this infinite mystery that is God. So the Israelites, right, they had this idol that they forged, this attempt to kind of circumscribe God to control his presence. And we don't craft like physical idols like this anymore, but there are other ways, right, that we, that we try to tame the infinite and inherent mystery of existence. And perhaps one of our, our great idols in the modern world is our use of technology. So recently I have been reading this book called Bulwarks of Unbelief, Atheism and Divine Absence in a Secular Age by the author Joseph Minich. And the author argues that our technology, uh, our technological existence, right? Well, a really good thing that has like really improved our material conditions, it can't have the side effect of obscuring God's mystery from our eyes because we become accustomed to this world that is like flattened of mystery, where existence is this kind of machinery that we can manipulate and we can control, where what is real is what we can measure. And anything that doesn't kind of get fit into that vision of the world is kind of like excluded from our eyes. In the book, he talks about how idols in the ancient world were actually a kind of technology. Uh, a technology that could like harness divine power, that could make it tameable and usable for human ends. And so even though today we don't carve idols, we do use technology as this kind of instrument of human autonomy and control that can obscure our absolute dependence on God every moment. We treat nature in all of existence as if it was something to be manipulated and mastered rather than meditated upon. There's been a great deal written about how mediating our social lives through technology changes how we relate to one another, right? It's easier for us to use and abuse people when they are just icons on a screen. And so technology tempts us, right, to turn people into objects for us to extract value from. And the same thing can happen to our relationship with God when we let our notion of this kind of impersonal modern world that sort of just stands in reserve for our exploitation. And at best, God becomes this theory or this conclusion of an apologetic argument. And so for the challenge of us in a world of technology, where technology is good, right, is not to abandon it, um, but to make space where we can still experience God's presence by putting us in touch with the mystery of life. Being is the key here, not doing, not even knowing in the discursive way that we commonly think of knowing. The path to encountering God is not self-help, it's not life optimization, 
And often, right, even like the Christian, uh, Christian discipleship, it can get warped into this commodified product, this kind of machinery or technique of the soul. What we need to do then is we need to practice the presence of God. We need to take up these practices like Sabbath, right? Which is this period of rest that God has set apart as holy where we renounce our control by ceasing from activity. Maybe we put all of our tech away for 24 hours and we spend time in nature or spend time in community. We need to learn to be more okay with silence, with mystery. When taking a walk or being in the park, can we put away our phones? Uh, can we focus on being with, present with God rather than scrolling. Because when we leave behind the world of our own contrivances, we find the God who is goodness itself, that is infinitely better than all the good things that we fill our lives with, no matter how good they might be. Things like technology are good, but they're not the final destination, right? What God makes pass before Moses is his infinite and pure goodness that far outstrips any of the other things that we could fill our life with. Now, we don't get a description of what Moses sees here, right, when God's glory passes by him, because that would ruin the mystery. But the theophany, it is accompanied by the announcement of God's name, Yahweh, which we said, right, comes from this Hebrew word to be. God simply is. But here we get like a further elaboration of that name with this extended title that is appended to it. Um, God announces, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so God is unbounded at his core, but at his core, he is unbounded love. Moses sees that God's people may wonder from God's presence, but this God will never abandon his people because faithfulness is the very core of his being. Now, it probably is helpful here to address like the second part of this title, which maybe feels kind of more disconcerting to us. The part that reads, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Christians have often read this passage and they've kind of taken it in unhelpful ways, right? Maybe sort of an idea of like generational curses that get passed down from parents to children to grandchildren. Um, but that's actually kind of the op opposite of what this passage is saying here. You see, the ancient world, it didn't have like our notion of a nuclear family, right? That very often you had people to the third to the fourth generation living in the same household. And so when God says that he will punish the iniquity to the third or fourth generation, what God is actually saying is that his judgment will be limited to the offending party, to the offending household. And so what we see here is actually like the very opposite of this vigilante culture where vengeance is perpetuated from generation to generation because God's justice is always circumscribed by his mercy. God will not turn a blind eye to injustice, but ultimately in the long term, God is in the business of mercy and reconciliation. I, I Google this, and since the Neolithic Revolution, only about 400 generations have passed 
that's kind of 10,000, 12,000 BC. And so a thousand generations is this like unfathomable stretch of time. It's longer than human civilization has been around. And so what God is actually saying here of showing mercy to a thousand generations is that God's mercy extends to all of human history and that the failings of individuals will in no way God's, negate God's commitment to being merciful to the human race. And God's mercy, it doesn't negate his justice, but it fulfills it. Because in grace, God isn't letting evil slide. He's not letting evildoers rampage against the innocent, but rather God's grace is something that is committed to transforming all things, to bring about perfect goodness and justice in the world so that ultimately God's grace and God's justice are things that coincide. Which brings us to the last point, God's restoration. When Moses came down from the mountain to confront the people over the golden calf, he had the two tablets of the law with him and he broke them at the base of the mountain to kind of illustrate this breaking of the covenant that had occurred. And so now to symbolize the restoration of that covenant, God tells Moses to take two new tablets to go up the mountain so that new copies of the covenant can be made. And I think when it comes to these tablets, like our imagination can be more informed by the world of Charlton Heston than the ancient Near East. And so we kind of think that like the two tablets are like two tables of the law that you have like five on one and five on the other. Um, but actually the two tablets, they're two copies of the same law, two copies of the same covenant. That one covenant, uh, one tablet is for the people and then one tablet is for God himself. It's like the carbon copy that God keeps. And by restoring the tablets, God is saying that he is committed to upholding his side of the covenant, even though the Israelites have broken theirs. God continues to be faithful to the covenant, even though God's people continue to stumble and fail, as they will, through their wilderness, through their wilderness wanderings, whenever they enter into the land, when they receive the kings, Israel keeps stumbling and falling over and over again. Until at last, in the New Testament, right, God himself fulfills the ancient promise of his covenant through his own faithfulness. We saw that Moses was this mediator between God and human beings, the very embodiment of God's mercy, God interceding with God. And what we get in Jesus is that the love and mercy of God actually becomes incarnate among us. Hebrews speaks of Jesus as the new and the better Moses. He is the pioneer and the forerunner of our faith who has entered into the holy place in heaven and has stood before God. And he has stood before God. He has ascended into heaven so that we can dwell in heaven before him, before the very face of God. Moses, he couldn't gaze at God directly, but through Jesus' Jesus's ascension, our finitude, our weakness, and our failure are at last overcome. And we can now gaze at God face to face in the person of Jesus. There is this idea in the church fathers uh, called theosis, this being made like God for union with God. 
And 2 Corinthians 3 is a passage that picks up on Exodus 33, 34 in a really interesting direction that moves it towards this understanding of theosis. Paul writes there that the new covenant that Jesus has established is no longer one that is written on tablets of stone, but is one that is written on the tablet of the very human heart. And the glory that Moses saw at Sinai has been surpassed by the even greater glory of Jesus himself, in whom we see the face of the Father. And Paul concludes by writing, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. Through our communion with Jesus, God shares himself with us. He shares himself with us so that all that we are might be all that God is, so that we at last may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is our true promised land, and may God give us the grace in Jesus Christ to enter it. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your presence that abides with us even in a world where there is so much that is difficult and dark. We thank you that you move with us. We pray, God, that we would come out with a renewed sense of your presence, that we would take moments to be aware of the mystery that is before us. Would you guide us, Lord, to our true promised land, which is to dwell with you forever. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.